Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning from the book of Joshua, that you would uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. We are coming in here as needy people. We are not coming in here as self-sufficient people who have it all figured out and have no cracks in the armor, Lord. We need your grace, and we need Jesus high and lifted up to encourage us and lead us into your promised land in days ahead. So we pray that you would bless us now and feed us, not from my words, but from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Portuguese have a word that sums up an entire feeling that so many of us experience. And their word is saudade, S-A-U-D-A-D-E. This word, which you may not have heard, I hadn't heard of it until recently, speaks to the longing that many of us have for place. And it's often connected to home. So think about this, okay? What is your background? What in your background do you find yourself at quiet moments in the day drawn to think about, sort of long for in the past? Oftentimes, what we long for, what we find kind of glowing in our memory, wasn't quite as perfect as we might think it is today. We tend to be uh, those who remember big sometimes. But nonetheless, there is in the human heart a longing for a lasting place of security, a a safe harbor for all of us. This instinct is not a new instinct for human beings, and it's not a new instinct for the people of God. As you see in the Old Testament, the Israelites have a strong desire to find a home. And once they set sail on their long journey they frequently find themselves returning to the desire for a place that they have left. This is a matter that they have to fight spiritually. In our text this morning, which is, I kid you not, the entire book of Joshua, we are going to see just how the Israelites, we're going to do this very quickly, I might add, we're going to see how the Israelites uh, tried to take the promised land, according to the call of God, this place that God had set before them as a place of lasting happiness. But we're going to see as we go, contrary to the way we sometimes talk about the promised land in the Old Testament, that the promised land Israel was supposed to take was never supposed to be their lasting possession. The people of God, in fact, from the beginning of the biblical story until this very morning, Sunday morning in 2016, are supposed to actually be looking toward a much greater land. So that's what we're going to see as we walk through four passages in the book of Joshua. I have four points for you, and these points will frame our understanding of the book of Joshua. We see first then this morning in Joshua 1, the call to take the promised land. So we will read in Joshua 1, 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So here, the successor to Moses is called to lead the people of God in a really exciting time in Old Testament history. God has formed a people for himself through the leadership of Moses in previous books of the Bible. And now this people of God is supposed to enter his promised land. 
But as you can see from the start, this is not going to be an easy mission. And this applies to us today. To follow the Lord in his plan has never been an easy matter. And we need to know this, okay? There's never been a time for true believers in the God of heaven and earth when it has been easy and convenient to follow the Lord. It has always taken tenacity given us by God to fulfill the mission and the vision of God. All of this vision that we read about in Joshua 1 is in keeping with a promise the Lord has made to Moses. So we learn here, as you see there in verse 5, just as I was with Moses, that the Lord is going to be with Joshua in the same way. And we are learning the character of God, even in this chapter of Scripture. The Lord is a promise-keeping God. He makes promises, and He keeps them. We tend to spiritualize our faith, but from the beginning, we see here that following God has had a strongly physical dimension. In other words, God has a desire to put his people under his rule in his place. God has a desire to put his people under his rule in his place. That is where God wants things to go. That is what the biblical story is aimed at. But to carry out this work we see in this text, requires initiative and courage. And the Lord is targeting in particular Joshua, the successor to Moses as the leader of God's people. Some of you noticed how twice the Lord directly says to Joshua to be strong and courageous in verse 6, and then in verse 7, he intensifies it to be strong and very courageous. This indicates that to answer the call of God requires stepping out in faith. It has always been so. It will never be different until the day that Christ returns. To be faithful to God in a fallen world for you, for you this morning, in your home, your family, college, university, school, whatever it may be, requires that you follow God and you, by the power of God, by the power of the gospel, which we'll talk about in moments to come, that you step out and be strong and courageous. It's not just the leaders of God's church who have to be strong and courageous. Joshua is indeed to lead in these attributes, but it's every Christian, in fact, who is called to find our strength in God. Now, you also note here in this passage that the blessing of God requires obedience to God. So you are never, in the biblical mind, going to experience the fullness of God's blessings outside of obedience. Every Christian is called fundamentally, every Israelite before there is such a thing as a Christian is called to obey the law. Verse 7, everyone is called to be careful to do, the Lord says, according to all the law. So our faith following the Lord, the, the, the most high God of heaven and earth is going to mean then and now being faithful to obey the Lord. To follow the Lord in this text is going to mean possessing the promised land. But we note in verse 4 that the promised land has rather imprecise boundaries. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, verse 4, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and beyond, all this land will be your territory, the Lord says. Why is this promise a little imprecise? I think it's because even here, as the people of God are about to enter the promised land, so this is a high point in the Old Testament narrative, there are signs that this promised land is not their true home. There are signs that this is not necessarily the place that they are actually going to live forever. But more on that in a few moments. The Lord calls in Joshua 1, this man to leadership. Note that God sets a high bar for Joshua as the one who was called to lead the people into this outlined but somewhat imprecisely formed territory. This is not generic leadership that we're talking about. This is God-centered leadership. Leaders are never stronger and are only in truth truly strong when they lead out of the overflow of God's strength. That is a true leader. A true leader is somebody who finds their gifting and their calling and their empowerment in God. 
We talked about this briefly with the men last night. Some men were kind enough to brave the wintry night air and talk a little bit about manhood with me. And uh, we, we made this point last night, and it's found here in this text. The Lord sets a high bar for Joshua. He doesn't set a low bar and tell Joshua, no matter what you do, Joshua, just so you know, it's going to be okay. You know, we'll just kind of get it done. Uh, you don't really need to obey me very much. You don't need to really pursue me. Um, we'll figure this out as we go. The Lord calls Joshua to a very high standard. And this is what young men in particular still need. They still need a high bar in your home, in our schools, in our communities, on sports teams. Choose your context. Men in particular, all Christians, but men in particular, need a standard to reach. They need something to shoot for. And they need this as well. They need somebody who will help them get there. They need somebody who will come alongside them and say, this is a high standard, okay? You're supposed to reach this. You actually are supposed to, for example, for many of us, love one wife all the days of your life. You are supposed to be a loving father to your children. You are supposed to serve your church. You are supposed to, you know, work hard at your place of employment, all out of the power of God, the grace of God, the overflow of God's goodness. But when men struggle to meet these standards... They also need that person to be there with them and walk with them through that and help them pick up the pieces and continue on. God is giving us a little picture of how to train up men. God himself is training up Joshua, isn't he, in Joshua 1. And God is telling us a little bit of how we ourselves need to train the next generation of leaders in God's church, the next generation of men who will not follow the world and obey the call of the world, but will follow the call of God. Well, the story in the book of Joshua progresses. Let's pick up with it in Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, we see that the Lord does not only use strong young men in his plan, he uses unpredictable characters. So you and I would maybe predict, if we know something of this narrative, that God is going to raise up a successor to Moses, as he does with Joshua. And we'd think, great, that's going to be how you know, the people of God are going to be led by a courageous, courageous man like Joshua is supposed to be. But we see here in the second point that the Lord uses those we would not expect in his story. In Joshua 2, we pick up in verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Verse 5, And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, as I say, we intuitively grasp that God is going to use a young man, a a godly man, we would say, like Joshua, to accomplish his plan to enter the promised land. But Rahab is not a participant we are expecting to enter this narrative. Rahab is a prostitute. She is a woman, as they say, of little reputation. She has no prior connection to the people of God. There's no reason that she would enter this narrative in terms of planning and forethought on the part of the Israelites. Nobody has picked Rahab out of the crowd and said, that's how God is going to accomplish this plan. That's how we're going to take the promised land, a prostitute among a pagan people. This is perfect. This is a perfect plan. As you draw up plans right now uh, for this church to thrive and flourish in days ahead, this is not part of your thinking. Let's just be honest. It's not part of the mission statement, the vision statement of the church, okay? Let's just keep it there, but I think you understand the point that I am making, right? But God, God uses unexpected people in his kingdom. And this is part of the beauty of the Christian worldview and the biblical narrative. God does not only use the well-born and those who everybody points to when, you know, you call for a leader. God brings uh, trophies of grace who nobody 
nobody sees value in to accomplish his plan. This is part of the beauty of our scripture, our worldview. We see, we see that everybody has value in the narrative of God. Though Rahab has no track record, as I say, of leadership among the people of God, she clearly acts virtuously. She hides the men, as you heard me read in verse 6. She saves the mission. The king of Jericho wants to kill these men and destroy them and thus impede the advancement of the people of God. He doesn't want Jericho to be taken by the people of God. He wants to destroy the Israelites. But because of Rahab's action, and interestingly, for those of you who enjoy ethics, I teach some ethics at Midwestern in Kansas City, uh, Rahab lies, doesn't she? She lies to save the lives of these men. And you might have initial concerns about this, but interestingly, in Hebrews 11, Rahab is in the hall of faith. She is very much commended for her virtuous action. So we learn here, I think, that Rahab acted rightly. She should have acted as she did to save the lives of these Israelite men. She was within her rights and righteousness, we could say, to do so. It's ironic because, as we'll see in the book of Joshua, those who should act righteously are going to behave poorly, whereas Rahab should behave wickedly, but acts righteously. The, the, the normal expectation we might have in reading the scripture is flipped. Even in the Old Testament then, and this is going to be a biblical pattern, even in the Old Testament, God uses foolish things to shame the wise and fulfill his plan. You see, in natural human terms, the way we think outside of Christ, we don't expect that foolish things are going to have a place in the bigger plans afoot in our world, in our society. You think about the recent presidential race. I don't know if you noticed that there was a presidential race for approximately three years or not, but being in the D.C. area, I'm sure that was especially enjoyable for you. In that race, we had testimony to the fact that America, there there are quotes to this effect, America loves winners. We, We love winners. We love those who make us look good, don't we? We want to be associated with the the high and mighty. In the biblical mind, foolish things of the world are often those who triumph over the high-born and the mighty. This is a biblical thread, a biblical theological thread, theme, that is going to continue all the way into the story of Christ. You see, we expect, we might expect if we know a little bit about the biblical narrative, we expect Jesus maybe to come to show up in power and glory, right? That's, that's what you would think we'd be celebrating at Christmas, right? Jesus coming from the clouds in thunder and awe to rout his enemies and set the world to rights. That's what we expect as we learn a little bit about God and his son that he's going to send, his Messiah. When you read Isaiah 53, perhaps, you might think, whoa, this messianic figure is going to be powerful and strong. Yes, he may, he may enter into battle, but he's going he's to be this mighty figure. And in truth, Jesus comes to the world as a foolish thing. Jesus is born as a baby. Jesus grows up in human, frail flesh. And Jesus in destroying the kingdom of darkness, is himself destroyed. That, my dear friends, is a picture of God using foolish things to shame the world, which, as I say, overturns our natural human expectations. Rahab does this long before Jesus fulfills this biblical theme. Rahab tells us that we should be watching out for God to work in unexpected places and people in his story. The world loves to pick winners and losers. The world loves to tell us that some are going to have value and worth and potential, and others, I'm sorry, you know, maybe they're in the womb and they're in tough economic circumstances. They have no worth and value. They, they're losers. They deserve to be killed, aborted, frankly. This is the kind of society we're in. We're in America. America prizes itself on being a first world country, right? You hear this language. We're not a third world country, but America 
is the country that has turned abortion into one of the most popular industries in this land. We have made abortion an art form as a people. We are barbarians at our core. We think we're high and mighty and civilized and well-educated and all these things, but you look at you look at the American heart and how we treat the least of these and how we pick winners and losers. And you recognize this is altogether unlike the biblical worldview, God's own plan. God uses losers in his plan. Those the world despises, those the world thinks nothing of, those the world turns its back on, scorns. And you and I should be very encouraged by this. If God can use a pagan prostitute like Rahab in his plan, if he can intervene in her life, lead him to himself, this is all part of the narrative, I think that's not all spelled out, and use her to save the mission of taking the promised land, God can use you. God can use me. Whatever age you are, whatever gifting you are, whatever position you have in this life, God will put you to work in his kingdom take tremendous encouragement from that this morning. Let your heart overflow when you read the story of Rahab in Joshua 2. This is not some ancient story that's of interest to us because we study the Bible. This is us. God uses the weak. God uses the shamed. God uses foolish things. Be encouraged. Well, the narrative continues. In the book of Joshua, the people of God do advance. They do take Jericho. That's good news. The conquest goes ahead. But what we see in the narrative as it unfolds in Joshua 7 is that sin ruins things. So even as the people of God, under the leadership of Joshua, are taking the promised land. Again, a key point in the Old Testament narrative there is sin entering the story. And so this leads us to our third point this morning. Sin ruins things. You see this picking up as we are kind of dropping in very quickly in a kind of mission impossible way in Joshua 7 verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So here's what has happened just prior to this. In chapter 6, the people, as I say, have taken Jericho. Rahab alone was spared. You see that in Joshua 6, 22 to 25. Things are going great, but then sin enters the camp. The reason for the defeat I just read about in Joshua 7, 2 through 5 is found in Joshua 7, 1. Achan, a man named Achan, gets greedy and decides that he is going to take some of the devoted things some of the possessions of this pagan people. Joshua 7, 1. So this is not what the Israelites were supposed to do. They're supposed to conquer pagan peoples who did not honor the Lord and wanted to destroy the Israelite people. But as they conquer, they're not supposed to take the spoils, right? They're supposed to leave that stuff alone. That's not the good stuff. What God is trying to indicate to them is that he is going to be their possession. He's going to be their treasure. You don't need foreign goods. You don't need pagan treasure. You need me. So as you're in this pagan context, do not let your heart be set on their goods, their material possessions, the things that give them happiness. Does this resound perhaps with you and me in 21st century materialistic America, where comparatively to much of the world and much of global history, we are very wealthy. Our hearts are drawn to possessions and to things and to stuff. And it's not that we should scorn uh, everything in this world. There's many good common grace gifts that God gives us. I don't think we should feel shame in enjoying them, but we should know this. Our hearts are going to be drawn to these, these pagan goods. We're going to be tempted to find our delight, our happiness in them. It's not wrong to have them necessarily, but it is wrong for us to find our delight in them. 
God gives different people in the biblical narrative wealth and even fantastic wealth. (laughs) And when we look back, I think we can be thankful for that. You look at Job, for example. Job was a man of tremendous means, and God gave him that. And even after God effectively destroyed uh, all that he had, God restored to him more than he had before. So I'm not saying here that you should feel shame if God blesses your work and blesses your home and there are common grace gifts to be enjoyed. I am saying that you and I have the same temptation to find our happiness in this world. And you have to be vigilant by the Spirit's power about your, your heart and the stuff, the things of this place. As a result of Achan not guarding his heart, the Lord removes his blessing from the cause of the Israelites. Disobedience brings death. The Lord makes clear in verse 10 of chapter 7 that his people have transgressed the covenant. The only solution is to destroy the plunder. And furthermore, in verse 15 of chapter 7, to destroy the one who has confiscated goods. Achan. Achan, in other words, is not treated with kid gloves. To be unholy, to directly disobey the word of God in this narrative is to invite the just correction and punishment, even the wrath of God himself. Why is the Lord so hot against law-breaking? Why such a strong sentence for Achan and those like him who disobey the Lord? It's because the book of Joshua is not actually about the people of God. It's not actually about Joshua as a great leader. Those are themes. But the book of Joshua is about God. The book of Joshua is about a holy God. Because God is set apart from sin, his people are to be a holy people. To be holy means to be set apart The fact is that God dwells in the heavens and is so far from sin as is possible to be. And so his people, though imperfect, uh, though forgiven, are to pursue holiness in this narrative and in the present day, right now, in our day and age. Sin is a destructive force. There is nothing benign about sin. You either destroy sin or it destroys you. It's an adversarial relationship that we have with sin. Every single Christian, every single person, you have, you have one of two choices. Pick one. And, and, and we should put this this way, I think, to unbelievers, honestly, even as we you know, unfurl the, the fullness of the gospel message. We need to confront ourselves, but also the lost with this truth. Two options. You either destroy sin by the power of God in you, or sin destroys you. That's it. That's it. There's no neutral approach to sin. There's no way to handle sin with kid gloves. There's no way to keep it like a plant in you know, your back room or something and tend it and make sure it's okay, but not ruin it. No. It either poisons you or you destroy it. That's it. And that was true in the life of Achan. Achan had two options before him, to obey the Lord or not to obey the Lord, and he chose tragically to disobey God. And so he is burned and stoned in verse 25 of chapter 7. The message for us in this tough text, and it's a tough text, isn't it, is clear. You and I have to be ruthless against sin by the power of Christ in us, by the power of the gospel, the message that Jesus died on the cross to wash our sins away and rose from the grave to give us victory over death. By that message, when we believe it and confess it and repent of all of our sins, we then are enfranchised, activated to be ruthless against sin, to hunt it down. The language that Paul uses in Colossians 3 about our sin, about the old man, is militaristic battle language. It's to put it to death. It's strong, visceral, manly language, and there's no new language offered us. This is true of every believer, guy or girl, man or woman. We are called to be ruthless against our sins. So, my friends, what's your attitude towards sin right now? You have besetting sins. I know you do. We all do. 
I have besetting sins. What is your approach to them? Do you have a plan to fight them? Do you have a plan to defeat them? Um, We often talk about sin as an isolated reality. I, I had a moment in the day where I fell into a trap and I sinned. In truth, that, that happens to us. Something unexpected, you know, just pops up in our heart and we sin, right? But in truth, a lot of our battle against sin is pretty predictable. There are places we go. There are behaviors we do when, I don't know, when we're stressed, when we're upset, when we feel threatened, all sorts of situations. And we then, we then enact a script. We begin a, a process in our hearts, in our minds, that leads to sin. What I'm trying to say is this. We have to build in, by the power of the gospel, a counter-program. It's kind of like computer programming, right? If there is code that is malicious on your computer, uh, you don't need to simply sit there before your computer and feel bad about it, feel sorry about it, right? That is not going to get the problem done, right? It's not going to solve it. You have to write a new script. You have to write new code. So when you, let me give one example, when you feel tempted to be frustrated with your children, or your friends, let's say. When that rises up in you, you need to confess that to the Lord. You need to be vigilant against sin. But then you need to pray to God to give you a new habit, a new pattern. What's your pattern going to be? When you're tempted to go to food, I don't know. This is something we do, right? We don't talk this way often, but we do it. It's very common. When you're tempted to find your satisfaction and hope in food, for example, what are you going to do to write a new script? How are you going to retrain your brain such that you don't find your satisfaction there? You find it in Christ. That's our constant struggle. But sin is not simply an isolated problem for you and me. This is true of all of us. Sin is patterned in us. There are codes in us, even after knowing Christ as our Savior that you and I, by the Spirit's power, by calling out to God in prayer, a simple prayer, not some complex, technical, super theological prayer, you know, with all the right words and footnotes. No. A prayer to God like this. God, help me. I am in a pattern of sin with my spouse. I am in a pattern of sin with my children. I am not loving my neighbor as the second greatest commandment calls me to. I do not love you, Lord, as I should. I know that I am supposed to dig deep into your word and delight in it and love prayer, and prayer sort of flows out of me. It's not a duty. It's, it's delight welling up in me, but I don't feel that way. I am in the trenches of life. Things are tough. Uh, I'm disappointed by people around me. I'm disappointed by myself. And this is hard. Lord, help me. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of prayer God loves to hear. That is not an insufficient, inadequate prayer. God does not only hear the prayers of those with extensive training in systematic theology or biblical studies or something, God hears the prayers of lowly people like you and me. God loves it when you are trapped in sin and you simply pray, help me. Those two words, maybe three if you add in God, help me. Those three words are a total counter-program, much stronger than the one Satan has written into our hearts to simply pray, God, help me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, lift up my face. I am low. I am weak. When you pray that, I firmly believe that God is very pleased with your prayer and is very pleased to help you, to send you grace through his spirit to enable you to to inhabit your more than a conqueror status, Romans 8, 37. The way we become more than a conqueror is not to puff ourselves up or, you know, feel like we are, it's, it's to claim the power of Christ in us, the power of Christ over sin in all of our hearts. Sin is always going to hinder the mission of God. Sin is going to hinder this local church, this church plan. So you have to have a plan against it, okay? 
You can't be on your heels about sin. Men, in your home, you can't be on your heels against sin. You can't think, well, I know sin's out there, but we're just kind of trucking along. We're fine. You've got to have a plan. How are you going to lead your family spiritually? How, are, how is your wife going to thrive in this home that God has made? How are your children going to be trained not to be sucked away and lured away by the culture, by Satan, really, and back of the culture, but, but how are your children going to love Christ and delight in Him? You need a plan. And if you've never had a plan, and if that sounds like a lot, again, I refer you to the simple prayer I suggested just a minute ago. God, help me. Lord, help me. If you're a single person and you know that your spiritual life is not where it should be, you're not serving the church the way you should, whatever it may be, God is pleased to hear that prayer. It doesn't need to be fancy or complex. It simply needs to be you calling out to the Lord. The Lord loves those prayers. Because of sin then, as we continue, the conquest was limited. It was not what it should be. You see this as the narrative goes on. For example, in chapter 12, the Israelites destroy people in North Canaan. So they are enacting God's judgment against pagan nations that hate the Lord. That's what they're supposed to do. And that's what they do. So there is some success in the conquest. But it is not final success. It is not absolute success. It is not the deliverance that the Lord wants. There is a ton of land to take. Chapter 13, verse 1. There's very much land to possess, we read. And so in chapters 13 through 20 of Joshua, land is taken and land is allotted, given to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's basically the second half of the book of Joshua. Land is taken in battle, and then land is parceled out per the wisdom and plan of God to the 12 tribes. So, so again, we've got a dual-threaded narrative taking place in the book of Joshua. Conquest is happening. God's people are obeying. Joshua is a good leader, and the people are taking some of the promised land, a good portion of it. But also, the people are not taking it as they should. This is not the realization, the fullest potential being reached in terms of God's design. Tiny Israel, then, is fearsome and powerful because of God you get a thrilling taste of what God can do in the weak, the small. This really matters to some of us. In the book of Joshua, you see that if you are faithful to God's covenant, to his purpose, to his plan, there are no limits on what he can do through you. There are no limits on what this church can be, the gospel effect it can have in this area. There's no limits. There's, there's not a ceiling, you should know, for you individually as a Christian. There's no ceiling there. There's no limits. There's no box you can't break out of. It's the same is true for God's local church. There's no ceiling that you, I'm sorry, you can't get beyond that. God is not a limited God. Please hear me. Against everything the culture says, against everything our flesh tells us, God is not limited. He has no limits. He is great and sovereign and majestic and awesome. He is an awesome God. That's what the conquest is about. It's not actually about Israel. It's about an awesome, overcoming, all-powerful God who, when his people are simply a little bit faithful, not spiritual all-stars, but a little bit faithful, he loves to lavishly bless and encourage and strengthen and use. And again, he uses the small and the weak and the unexpected in that plan. You might find yourself thinking, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not some, you know, person who's being profiled on the cover of Christianity Today. What can I do for the Lord? I don't have a massive platform out there. How am I supposed to be used by God? I work a secular job. Um, I don't even have that much time to tell people about Jesus. I'm trying to, you know, get going one day at a time. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to enter into the massive deliverance plan of God? Well, what you see with tiny Israel is your own lesson. If you will follow the Lord by his grace, he will put you to work. It may not be headlines, you know, in the Christian magazines or something. It may not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if, if we are faithful by the power of Christ in us, if we cry out to God for help, God puts us to work. God uses Israel along those lines, and God will use us. 
So that's what you're seeing in the second half then of this book. But you're also seeing this. God judges evil to the utmost. He judges it to the dregs. Now, let me have a word with you here as believers in a secularizing American context. The justice of God is not popular today on, for example, your local college or university campus that is not Christian. Even in Christian circles, people are backing away from God's justice. They're willing to hold to it. They're not denying it, I mean, but they don't really want to talk about it. They, they don't want to see it in any way as accomplishing anything positive. And they, they're being told that if they embrace a God who has wrath against sin, that they're embracing a kind of monstrous God. These, these ideas are out there. You can find them. These are not small matters that we are talking about. You have to handle the justice of God with care, don't you? But you must know this. We cannot reduce God to love alone. This is a common instinct today. To, to go to passage like 1 John 4.10 and say that God is love, for example, and then reduce God only to love. Isaiah 6 indicates that God is holy, holy, holy. A little foreshadowing, many scholars think, of Trinitarian holiness, right? God is fundamentally loving, absolutely. But God is also fundamentally holy. He is a holy God. In a sinful world, what is the outworking of holiness? Justice. Justice against sin. As God is just, perfectly just, He must avenge evil. You have to make this connection carefully, don't you? But you have to make it securely. Brothers and sisters, you do not want a toothless God. You do not want a weak God. You do not want a fairy tale God. I assure you, you want a God who overcomes evil. That's what you get when you have a God of justice, a God of love, but a God of justice. Holiness expressing itself in a sinful world. Think for a minute. If you're pushing against this truth biblically, if this is a a hard one for you, and it is hard for people, I, I admit, think about what a wicked world this is. I mentioned abortion culture. Think about what that represents. Think about what one abortion represents, the taking of an innocent life, and then multiply that by millions and millions of babies. Think about all the, the harm and the unkindness that takes place on a daily basis uh, between men and women in relationships. Think about your own past. Is, is there some grievous wrong that you or your family suffered? Is there something rough uh, in your past? Do you want God to overcome evil? Do you want God to undo sin? Do you want God to utterly destroy darkness? We sang about that earlier. I do. I don't want just a God who has warm feelings towards me and wants to boost my self-esteem through little spiritual vitamins. I want a God who is going to undo all of this wickedness, who is going to destroy Satan. I want a strong God. And that is what the Scripture gives you. Some of you know what it is like to have been vulnerable and not be powerful in the face of evil. This is a common experience for all of us at some level. We can't fix the world, can we? We're in a fallen, sinful world. We can't make it right ourselves. We sometimes think we can. Uh, the younger generation, in seemingly every generation, gets you know, really bright-eyed and we're going to fix the world. And we all realize at some level, at some point, that we're not Jesus. We can't fix the world. We, we, can, we can work hard. By the, by the grace of God, but we can't undo evil. God can. God will. That's what you get when you get a God of justice. You want, hear me, you want a God who judges evil because it means the reign of sin and death and hell ends. It ends. Glorious truth that this is. We find it in Scripture in the Old Testament. It comes to its realization, of course, in the book of Revelation. So, as we round third toward home here, 
we see that in the book of Joshua, the Israelites do conquer significant portions of the promised land. That's glorious. That's, that's God's grace in action. But we also see, as I say, that they have not conquered as they should. And here is what the book of Joshua is telling us. There is a tremendous need for a greater Joshua, for a true conqueror, for complete justice, not partial justice, not a people who are going to be sinful as they take the promised land, but for a man who will come and lead the people of God perfectly with no sin. And so this leads us to the end, the very end of the book, Joshua 24, where we see the promise of a covenant, our fourth point, final point, Joshua 24. In this passage, Joshua tells the people in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, Joshua says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Okay, so as the book closes, a stable society has been set up. Cities of refuge have been established in chapter 20. The Levites are cared for in chapter 21. The eastern tribes return home in chapter 22. And the book closes with this passage that I just read. The focus here is on Israel's need to follow the Lord. This is a call to Israel to obey. And we are learning here that the people of God were faithful to a point, but that they did not ultimately fulfill the mission. The book of Joshua is telling us that we need a greater conqueror and we need a land that cannot be compromised or stolen. The Old Testament is not just the first part of the Bible before Jesus. The Old Testament is a book that anticipates Jesus. It's a book that whets your appetite for a greater king. Both the Old and the New Testament point to Jesus. So, in the book of Joshua, we learn that, now we're moving ahead in the narrative, to you and me. Through Christ, we have entered the promised land. Jesus is our inheritance. The book of Hebrews teaches this in multiple chapters from multiple angles. Jesus is the one we were awaiting. To know Jesus and be in union with him through the Spirit is to find the rest promised to the people of God. Jesus is our rest. You don't obey the law, the Old Testament, Old Covenantal law anymore. There's confusion about this in Christian circles. I'm heading out on a limb very quickly here. But you follow the New Testament teaching of Christ. The Old Testament law has no hold over you anymore. Jesus is your rest. Jesus is your king. Jesus is your promised land. Now, he's going to further fulfill that reality, this reality talked about in the book of Joshua. He's coming back. Jesus is returning. He's going to claim all the earth and make it all of his without any controversy to be settled. It will be utterly his, and there will be no sin in this world. There will be no death. So there's a final fulfillment of Jesus as our promised land when Jesus literally makes the earth his footstool. So know this. There's a greater fulfillment coming. But you are not, you are not lacking rest. You and I have entered the promised land through Jesus spiritually. There's a physical dimension to come, but we've entered it. Your rest then is not actually in keeping, I, I think, this is my view, in keeping the Sabbath. You will hear this from Presbyterians and others. Your rest is not a day anymore. I'm not trying to get into theological controversies. I'm trying to encourage you. Your rest is not on a day. It's not a 24-hour period any longer because of Jesus. Your rest is now Christ you enter the rest of God every day, every minute. You don't have to wait for Sunday. You don't wait for a Sabbath any longer. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. The blood of the new covenant means that we have entered a better covenant. Okay, this has been a lot to give you on a Sunday morning. We need to just close with a, a, a few quick applications, very quick. First, out of the overflow of everything we've talked about, Find your story in God's story. The world tells us 
to promote our brand and become an Instagram celebrity, whether the secular kind or the Christian kind. There are various versions. It's fine to be on social media, I think. I am. But here's the deal. We will not become happy when we are acknowledged as great and liked and favorited by lots of people. You and I will become happy when we are a speck, when we're insignificant, when we're a little tiny piece of dust in the throne room of God. That's what it means to truly find our story in God's story. That's where we find meaning and value. Second, by the grace of God, we learn from this book, we are called to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, rooting out sin. Hunt your sin down. Be aggressive against it. Talk to your spouse over lunch, over dinner, in in upcoming days or something like this. Talk to your friends, your roommates. Ask them how you can kill sin. What sins do you need to kill? You have them and I have them. Third, know that your feeling of saudade, the Portuguese word I used at the beginning, your desire for home, for happiness, your, your distant memory of a place in your background that glows, that is warm, where everybody loves you, is actually not your fulfillment. It's not in the past, brothers and sisters. It's in the future. Your home that you need to return to is not six decades ago, two decades ago, one decade ago. The place you need is coming The best is yet to come for every believer, whatever age you are. The best is coming. The promised land is soon going to dawn. Jesus is soon going to take every inch back of this world and bring you into it if you are in Christ, if you know him as your Savior, and you will reign and rule with him world without end. That's our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Joshua. Thank you for our hope in Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, the one who conquers and none can stay his hand. Thank you, Lord, that your son will destroy evil and sin and death. We await that day and we pray that until it comes, you would find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.